So let's get into this. We are in our Advent series, which this year we have called Manger Throne, based off of the the new Phil Wickham song that we've been singing. And, And what I am doing is I'm taking different lines from the song that are inspiring different sermons as we explore all the aspects of both the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. And so we are in part four today, and the line from the song that I am taking is, from the cradle to the cross, from the cradle to the cross. And I love this line because it reminds us that, yes, while we are celebrating the newborn baby in the manger, that that baby in the manger was the beginning of the story of Jesus that ultimately led to a cross because he was willing to die for our salvation from the cradle to the cross. And so what that means is is today, I want to explore the idea of salvation. This may not come across as a normal Christmas message because I want to teach you guys theology. I want you guys to understand foundational things. And so this isn't going to be like a uh, maybe a profound life application teaching. But when we understand truth, it transforms us. And I want us to understand truth today. God's timing is so good. Uh, Obviously, we're reading Romans right now in our Rooted Bible reading calendar. And maybe it doesn't make sense. Why are we reading Romans at Christmas time? Well, when I put the calendar together, we just go through the Bible in order. So this just happens to be where we were as we were going through the Bible in order. But God knows. And as we're reading Romans this week and we're reading these beautiful passages on salvation, I'm like, this is what we're going to teach. We're going to teach what we're reading in Romans. And and so this is what we're going to go after today. I just want to lay a foundation of the theology of salvation so that we understand what we believe and why we believe it and so that it will transform us and so that it will also inspire us when we share it with others. Amen? All right, so if you got your notes, they're in your bulletin, they're in the church app, they're attached to this video on our website, or they're also attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point today. The first advent launched God's work of salvation that he had planned before time began. Understanding salvation should be at the heart of our Christmas celebration. So yes, we're celebrating Christmas, and we've got the Advent candle, and we've got the decorations, and we've got the Christmas gifts, but all of it points to salvation. And so if we don't understand salvation, the rest of it is just the trappings of a holiday. I want us to understand salvation so it's more than just a holiday, but it's the the cry of our hearts. It's the source of our rejoicing. It's everything that matters. God had a plan of salvation before time began. Let's start in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul wrote, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Other translations translate that as before time began. 
right? So this grace was granted to us. This plan of salvation from Christ Jesus was granted to us before time began. God always had this plan. He always knew that if he created a physical world and put physical humans in it, that we would need a Savior. And so before he even started creating, he already had a plan for us. Revelation tells us that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. This has been God's plan before he even started creating. And to bring this plan into effect, to bring a Savior to the world, God started by choosing one man, Abraham, out of the entire human race and making covenant with that one man. The amazing thing is the Bible doesn't even tell us why he chose Abraham. Abraham didn't deserve it. Abraham didn't do anything special to get noticed. It was simply God's sovereignty. He chose one man, made a covenant with that one man, and out of Abraham came the child of promise, Isaac, and out of Isaac came Jacob, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and from Israel came 12 sons. In order to preserve those 12 sons through one of the worst famines in recorded history, God sent one of those sons to Egypt in a crazy way and then sent all of them to Egypt to be preserved through the famine. And though the Egyptians turned on the sons of Israel and turned them into slaves, God still preserved them for 400 years until one family became a nation of people. And he delivered that nation of people on an exodus out of Egypt, and he manifested his presence among this chosen people. And then he gave them the promised land, Canaan, where they could establish themselves as a nation. And then as a nation, he gave them the law, the Torah, as a caretaker so that they could remain in his presence even though they were a broken and a sinful people. And yet they continually violated that law. And so over and over again, God had to allow punishment to come. But every time they were punished, he always preserved a remnant of his people. And that remnant remained in Israel until, as the Bible tells us, at the appointed time, God could bring forth from the nation Israel a Savior, not just for Israel, but a Savior for all the nations, right? God did all of that because he had a plan from the beginning. And that plan was to bring us Jesus Christ, who Paul presents to us as the second Adam. The second Adam. And this is important to understand in light of salvation, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, which is known as the great chapter on resurrection, Paul also gives this doctrine of the second Adam. Starting in verse 21, it says, For since by a man death came, by a man with a capital M also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Skipping down to verse 45, it says, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. 
The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy one, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly one, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, right? So there was a first Adam, a carnal man who was made from the dust of the ground. He was earthy. He was carnal. But then there was the second Adam, the second man who was Jesus Christ, and he was not made from the dust of the ground. He came from heaven, and he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Not the normal means of conception by which humans are conceived, but the Holy Spirit created a living being inside of Mary. So the second man is heavenly. And so we bear the image of the first man. Right? The Bible says that God created Adam in his image. But then it says that Adam had children in his own image. Right, So it went from the image of God to the image of the earthy man. And so we were born in the image of the earthy man. And because the first man sinned, death came into the world. And because we are born in his image, we are born as sinners. We are born under the curse of sin. But the second man is heavenly. He was not born in the image of man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I told you guys last week that Jesus was fully human. He was like us, and he experienced our lives in every way just like us except for one. And this is that one, is that Jesus was not born under the curse of sin because he did not come from the earthy like we do. That is the one difference. And because he was not born under the curse of sin, he is the one that could set us free from that curse. Right? He was fully God. That means it was impossible for him to sin. So even though he was a human and he experienced all the same temptations that we experience, all the same hurts and pains and all of those things, he was not going to sin because he's God. And because he was not born under the curse of sin like we were. In Romans 5, which is today's rooted Bible reading, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned, and then jumping to verse 17, for if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness, oh, you jumped ahead of me, there we go, one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous." Come on, through the sin of one, Adam, the first man, we all became sinners. This is important. We are not sinners because we sin. We were born sinners, and therefore we sin. Do you guys get the difference? 
We were born into sin, right? David wrote in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb. We are born sinners, and that's why we sin. And that's why we have to be born again as something different. Born again, bearing the image of the heavenly man, the second Adam, and then we will be declared righteous, justified. Told you guys I was going to teach today. Come on. John Stott, the, the great British theologian, wrote it like this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Think about that. Every time we sin, we are making the decision that we know better than God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, taking the punishment for us. Oswald Chambers, the great teacher, said it like this. The Son of God took upon himself our nature, not to teach us how to die, but to make us partakers of his nature that knows how to die and yet live. Right? Jesus took on our nature so that he could give us his nature. And with his nature comes resurrection power that says, though we die, we know how to live. So what we are doing today is called soteriology. I just want you guys to know this in case you ever hear this word. Soteriology simply means the study or the doctrine of salvation. So what is salvation? You can see in your notes. I think this is an important definition. Salvation is God's complete work to deliver man from the condition of sin and from the power of the devil. That's salvation. It's God's complete work that delivers us both from the condition of sin and from the power of the devil. Now, I want to talk to you guys about this idea of the tenses of salvation. When uh, I was young in ministry, I was doing a, a word study on the word salvation. And uh, I, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Um, but I was reading these words that say that our salvation is yet to come. And so Shannon and I were newlyweds at the time. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm asking her questions like, are we not saved yet? And she's looking at me like I'm a heretic. And, and so that was many years ago. And now uh, I, I have a much fuller understanding that there are actually all three tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future, right? There are past tense. He saved us, past tense. There is present tense, such as work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a present tense. And there is also future tense, right? Those who endure to the end will be saved. So salvation comes in all three tenses. So how are we to understand that? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's start with the past. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 5. He saved us, past tense. That means it's already done. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that... 
being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Past tense, he saved us. I want you to write there in your blank, justification. Right? We just read right there in Titus, so that being justified by his grace. So when we talk about salvation in the past tense, we're talking about justification. What does that mean? Justification is actually a legal term. It's a term that even in Paul's day, when he used that word, it was a term that would have been used in the courtroom. And it's a legal term declaring that we are not guilty or that we are righteous because the requirements of the law have been fulfilled. Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the requirements of the law that said that perfect blood has to be spilled to pay the price for sin and that the penalty for sin is death. And since we cannot spill perfect blood on behalf of our own sin, then we must face the reality that our punishment for our sin is death. And death means eternal separation from God. And so the requirements of the law were fulfilled because Jesus spilled his perfect blood for us and he died in our place And because of that, we are declared righteous. We are justified. Past tense. It's done. It's already done. Every sin we've ever committed is under the blood of Jesus, and we are not guilty. The Bible says our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Come on, somebody should be shouting right now. This is good news. Come on. All right? You guys with me? That is past tense. Let's talk about present tense salvation. Romans chapter 6. This is tomorrow's Bible reading. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your body's parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So in your notes next to present, I want you to write sanctification. This is present tense salvation. You have been declared not guilty, and you have been set free from slavery to sin so that now you can be slaves to righteousness. And how do we live that out? Every day we make the decision that we are presenting our body to Jesus to be slaves to him rather than presenting our bodies to sin to be slaves to the devil. So our present tense salvation is our daily victory over sin. Not that we ever reach perfection because we won't in this life, but that every day we have the means to be victorious over sin because of our present tense salvation. What does sanctification mean? It means the ongoing process of being made holy. 
It's not something that's completed. It's something that continues to happen. We are continually being made holy. We are continually becoming more like Jesus. We are continually becoming more dedicated to God in our devotional life. We are continuing to increase in moral purity. That is sanctification. That is our present tense salvation that every day we can become a little more like Jesus. Every day we can find a little more victory over sin because of our salvation. Come on. How about future tense? Why does the Bible say that we're not saved yet? What is the salvation that will come? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You guys get that? Part of our salvation is reserved in heaven for us. We don't have it yet. What is it? It's being imperishable and undefiled. The next verse, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Think about that. Part of our salvation won't be revealed until the very end. So in your notes next to future, I want you to write glorification. So we've got justification, sanctification, and now we've got glorification. What does that mean? It means we will be resurrected in perfect, imperishable bodies to live for all eternity in the glory of God, conformed completely to the image of Christ. Hallelujah. We will not accomplish that in this life. That's why it's the future tense salvation. But this is the ultimate end of our salvation, is a perfect body allowed to dwell in the glory of God for all eternity, completely conformed to the image of Christ. We'll be just like Jesus. Today, I just want to be a little more like Jesus. But then, I'll be completely like Jesus Right, John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, he said, we don't know yet what we are becoming. But on that day, it will be revealed. We have no idea yet how glorified and amazing our lives are going to be. But we know that day is coming. The church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, Athanasius was actually a young man at the Council of Nicaea that we talked about last Sunday. He was not yet a bishop. He was an assistant to the bishop at the Council of Nicaea. And then he eventually became a bishop. Listen to this line that he wrote back in the 300s AD. He said, Jesus became what we are so that he might make us what he is. That's future tense salvation. Jesus became what we are so that he might make us what he is. Amen. You guys doing okay? This is technically the time I'm supposed to stop, but you can tell in your notes I got a lot more. All right? So I'm just going to keep going. Hallelujah. 
The main passage I wanted to read today is Romans chapter 3, which was our, our Bible reading on Friday. And I want to start in verse 9. I'm not going to get through all of this, but I'm going to try to get through a good chunk of it. Verse 9, Paul starts out by asking the question, what then? Other translations say, what shall we conclude then? So what that means is Paul is about to make his concluding statements about this topic that he's been talking about for three chapters. What is the topic that he's been talking about? Well, it started in chapter 1 and verse 18 when he talked about the pagan people who had given themselves completely over to sinfulness, so much so that God turned them over to their flesh and they gave themselves completely to vile sin. And not only to vile sin, but they encouraged others to do the same thing. Though they had the chance to see God revealed in all of creation, they chose instead to worship the creature rather than the creator. Then in chapter 2, he talks about the moral people, the people that think they're really good, and they look down on those nasty, vile sinners. And he says, you're just as bad as they are. And then he talks about the Jews, the religious people who have the law, and they've been gifted and blessed with the law, but they never kept it. So he lists... The vile pagan sinners, those who are moralists, who, who do good things, and those who are religious, right? He discusses all three of them and says at the end of the day, all three of them are in the same boats. And then he gets to verse 9 and says, what then? What shall we conclude then? Are we better than they? He's asking, are we identifying himself as Jewish? Are we better than they, or do we have an advantage over them? And then he answers his question, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he goes on, and I'm going to read this really quickly. He uses a bunch of different Old Testament scriptures and links them all together into one declaration over mankind. He says, as it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Whew, that's quite a list. And Paul took that entire list from the Old Testament. That is the condition of mankind. That is why you see that first bullet point in your notes under understanding salvation is that we all need it because this is the condition of all of us. Whether you have just given your life completely over to sin or whether you think you're a pretty good person because you live a morally upright life or whether you think you're okay because you're religious, all three categories are condemned under sin. No one is good, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. You say, well, people go on spiritual journeys all the time. Yeah, but are they seeking God with a capital G? Or are they seeking personal fulfillment through God's with a lowercase g? 
right? We all need salvation. We are all condemned under sin. Even if you have a great, healthy marriage and you raise some healthy kids and you've got a successful career and you've got money in the bank and you did everything right with your life and you say, I'm okay, Paul says, no, we're all condemned under sin. We all need salvation. Picking it up in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. You guys with me? So, so Paul now is just reiterating, the law didn't do anybody any good. In other letters, he asks the question, does that mean the law is bad? And he answers that question and says, no, absolutely not. The law reveals God's holy standard. We just can't keep it. Therefore, the law brings to us the knowledge of sin because we can't keep it. So the law wasn't bad. We just can't follow it. Now he switches gears and gets into the good news. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's telling people this was all in the Old Testament. God's plan of salvation was all in there. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. We're going to talk about that word in just a minute. A propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. For the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It's been excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. He's saying we can't brag about it because we didn't do anything to earn it. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Come on. So let me get through these notes here. Number two, God's wrath must be satisfied. God's wrath must be satisfied. We don't talk about this a lot. That there is a wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards in 1741 preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Probably the most profound sermon ever preached on the wrath of God. That's sermon was the catalyst for a revival in the American colonies at that time that became known as the First Great Awakening because Jonathan Edwards wasn't afraid to preach 
on the wrath of God. Listen to some of these excerpts from the sermon. So that thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment longer. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. And they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. People don't preach like that anymore, right? Jonathan Edwards paints this picture of us being propped up over the, the flames of hell. And the only thing holding us there is the hand of God. And God is under no obligation to keep his hand there. He can take it away at any time. And we are completely dependent upon the mercy of a God who we have angered. What a picture. The wrath of God must be satisfied. Let me teach you a term called antinomy. Antinomy is another legal term which means two laws or two attributes that are mutually incompatible. As an example, if somebody makes the statement to you, there is no absolute truth, that's an antinomy. Because merely them saying it implies there's an absolute truth, and yet they're saying there is none, right? So the antinomy I want to talk to you guys about is that God is holy and God is love. Two attributes of his nature that are mutually incompatible. His holiness requires that only perfection be allowed near him and that anything short of perfection makes him angry and must be punished by his wrath. That's a part of his nature. He cannot deny that. But God is also love. And because he loves, his nature requires of him that he makes a way for us. But the problem is, he can't fulfill one aspect of his nature and disregard the other. Right? So people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? Because he's also a holy God. That's why. He can't just lean into the loving part of his nature and say, I'm just going to love everybody. Everybody's welcome. Because that would be denying the holy part of his nature. He must fulfill both parts of his nature, which means the holy part of his nature mandates that his wrath must punish sin. He cannot deny it. But the loving part of his nature mandates that he must make a way for us. So what did God do? He made a way for us that fulfilled the requirements of the law, that fulfilled the requirements of his holiness, so that he can take away his wrath 
and show us only his love. And what is that? That is a fancy word called propitiation. Propitiation means atonement. It means it's been paid for. It means the removal of wrath. It refers to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So God who is holy has a wrath, and that wrath is going to send people to hell because they have been sinners. But because God is love, he came to earth in the form of a baby named Jesus. And that baby lived a full life without sin and died on a cross to fulfill the requirements of God's holiness so that his wrath could be removed and we could experience his love. Come on. That's understanding salvation. Not, oh, God's just good with whatever I do. Oh, God's just love. He just wants us to be happy. That's not salvation. This is salvation. Propitiation. The removal of his wrath. The great teacher, A.W. Tozer, said it like this. The cross is the lightning rod of grace that short-circuits God's wrath to Christ so that only the light of his love remains for believers. Right? So if you think of electrical circuits, the cross took that circuit of wrath that was coming to us and short-circuited it to Jesus. So the only thing that comes to us is love. His wrath must be satisfied. We cannot have salvation without his wrath being satisfied. You guys following me? Right? So when we believe in Jesus through his death on the cross, the wrath of God is put upon Jesus, and all that's left for us is his love. That's what a loving God looks like. Come on. All right, I got to stop. Worship team, come back up. Just really quickly, God initiated and completed the work of salvation. We weren't looking for salvation. We weren't seeking God. God was seeking us. We didn't start the process. He started the process. He started it. He planned it before time began. He started it when he chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. You could even go further back and say he started it with Noah when he preserved humanity and made a covenant with Noah. God started it, and God completed it. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Everything that needs to be done for our salvation is already done. We don't need to do anything else. He started it, and he completed it. Next, righteousness can only be credited by God. The Bible says our attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags before God. Every good thing you've ever done when compared to God's righteousness is just a filthy rag. That's it. Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Only God can credit righteousness. There is nothing that we can do to be righteous. We are not righteous because of the good things that we do. We do good things because God has already declared us righteous. Our righteousness can only come from a declaration of God. Nothing else. Only God can say, you are righteous. And it says that when we believe righteousness is credited to us. 
So God made the way for salvation. He initiated it. He completed it. The Bible says he's the one that calls our hearts to him. And our only responsibility is to believe. Those who believe will receive his righteousness. Now, to believe is kind of a loaded word because to believe is not merely mental assent. It's not merely, okay, yeah, sure, I believe that sounds good. No. To believe means it changes everything about who you are. To believe is to repent. Because if I believe that God loved me so much that he came to earth and died for me, then I'm going to turn away from my old life and give myself to the life that God wants. To believe is to obey. If I believe he's God, then I'm going to do what he says. To believe is to surrender, because if he's Lord, then I'm going to surrender my will to him. So believe is a loaded word, and yet it's all we have to do is believe. And finally, reconciliation is being moved from hostility to peace. The Bible says that God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.1, it says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be reconciled means to move from hostility to peace. It means you were in a place where you were hostile to God and God was hostile to you. You were under the condemnation and the wrath of God. You are held in his hand above the flames of hell. And there is nothing stopping him except his own restraint from removing his hand. That is the condition we are in apart from Jesus. But when we come to Jesus and we believe, we are reconciled. We are brought from a place of hostility to a place of peace, from a place where we are an enemy to a place where we are family. And we can live at peace with God. The requirements of his holiness have been fulfilled. He has declared us justified, not guilty. He has declared us righteous with his righteousness. And now we live out our faith and the life he's called us to, not trying to earn anything, but simply living out of the flow of who he made us to be. The German-Dutch theologian Thomas Kempis said it like this, God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. That is salvation. He didn't come to make you a little bit better. He came to make you something completely different. He came to reconcile you from an enemy to a son or a daughter. That is salvation. That is the Christmas story. That is the baby that came to a cradle and gave his life to a cross. Amen? Amen. Will you stand together with me? Give him praise. Give him praise. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, I ask today, anybody hearing this message, anybody here in person, anybody on the digital campus, anybody listening to this podcast that hears this message, God, I pray that your spirit would draw their hearts, that you would lift the veil so that they can see and understand the truth. And it's in this moment of the knowledge of the truth that they would be set free and they would surrender their heart and life to you, Jesus. And they would find that salvation. They would find past tense. Their old life has been wiped away. They would find present tense, daily victory over sin, being sanctified each day.
and they would find future tense, the glory that we look forward to. I pray, God, that this understanding would shape who we are, that we as your people would have a biblical worldview and that we would have an understanding of the truth of salvation, that we could speak boldly and clearly to those that we love who are lost without Jesus. Anoint us, empower us, fill us so that we can be carriers of your salvation. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's, let's worship the one who saved us.